Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 67. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 20 through 23 in the book of Samuel and follow with a consideration of force and its effectiveness against a counterinsurgency. In the last episode, King Shaul has determined that David, the mild-mannered shepherd boy from Bethlehem, the killer of Goliath and countless other Philistines, is a grave threat to him and his dynasty. And thus King Shaul gives the order, Kill him. But Shaul's own children conspire to keep David alive, especially Yonatan, who at the outset of chapter 20 commiserates with David and tries to figure out what to do next. In the end, they hatch a plan to suss out Shaul's sentiments at the new moon feast. Yonatan will go out into the fields ostensibly to practice his archery skills, but what he'll really be doing is sending David a message with a clustering of his arrows. If fired in one direction, David will know he can return to the palace. If in the other, Shaul still rages and David must continue to hide. And so, as the king and court celebrate the new moon, the king notes that David's seat is empty, but says nothing. On the second day of the feast, Shaul turns to Yonatan and asks, quote, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the feast either yesterday or today? Yonatan explains that David has begged leave to go to Bethlehem to celebrate with his family. Shaul rejects the excuse and explodes into a rage, quote, O son of a perverse, wayward woman! Don't I know you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you and your kingship will not be unshaken. Yonatan has his answer. And so he goes out, ostensibly to refine his archery technique. And after sending away his servant to return the arrows to the palace, he meets with David, shares the sad news, and parts from his beloved friend. When they will see each other again, they do not know. David is now a fugitive. God help! Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in that area. Checkpoints go up in 15 miles. And when he arrives at the monastery at Nov, he spooks Achimelech, the Kohen, who wants to know why one of the king's men is traveling all by himself, empty-handed. So David makes up a story about a secret special mission, cadges some special provisions, and even manages to get his hands on the sword of Goliath, which had been placed in the monastery for safekeeping. But Doeg the Edomite, chief shepherd of Shaul, is there and witnesses the exchange. Where to next? Where can David go where Shaul will not follow? To the land of the Philistines, where David now finds himself in Gat, in the court of King Achish, where he quickly realizes that his reputation for killing Philistines has preceded him. So he decides to play the fool, and Achish has David thrown out. David then heads off into the wilderness and, quote, his brothers heard, as well as his father's household, and they came down to him there. And every man in straits, and every man in debt, and every man who was embittered gathered round him. So now, with a posse of 400 men, David heads to the frontier with Moab. But after counsel from God the prophet, he heads west and eventually hides in the forests of Cheret in the land of Yehuda. 
Shaul, meanwhile, berates his kinsmen for their lack of loyalty. Quote, listen, pray you, Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make every one of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds that all of you should have conspired against me and none revealed to me when my son made a pact with the son of Jesse? And none of you has troubled for my sake to reveal to me that my son has set up my servant to lie in wait against me as on this very day. When Doeg pipes up, well, uh, I've seen David. He was in Nov, and Achimelech gave him food and the sword of Goliath. Shaul heads to Nov and accuses Achimelech of treason. Achimelech is taken aback. Quote, Who of all your servants is like David, loyal and the king's son-in-law and captain of your palace guard and honored in your house? But Shaul is unmoved. He condemns not only Achimelech to death, but his whole family and all the Kohanim in Nov. But no one in Shaul's guard will dare raise a hand against the Kohanim, except for Doeg the Edomite, who is not cowed by Jewish holy men. He slaughters 85 Kohanim in the monastery before moving on to murder all the remaining men, women, and children in the town, as well as their cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Only Eviatar, the son of Achimelech, escapes with the ephod, the sacred breastplate, and he manages to find David who takes him in. Quote, Do not fear, for whoever seeks my life seeks your life, so you are under my guard. The Philistines, perhaps sensing the discord in Israel, mobilize against Israelite towns in the frontier. David's forces strike back at the Philistines, but they do not have time to relish their victory as Shaul's forces arrive in hot pursuit. And the pursuit is indeed hot through the Judean desert, the Negev, and the Arava. Shaul almost succeeds in capturing David, but an urgent call to repel Philistine raiders forces Shaul to break off his pursuit. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Some Tanakh-oriented psychiatrists have claimed that Shaul suffered from a recurrent unipolar depression, while others have argued bipolar affective disorder. Whichever diagnosis from the DSM you want to deploy, folks have medicalized the fact that Shaul had his moods, which could easily explain the on-again, off-again relationship he had with David, and the moods, the highs and the lows, also might explain the order he gave to murder the Kohanim in Nov. This order, arguably rash and impulsive, is totally out of character for the man who decisively galvanized the people against Ammon, or conversely, totally uncharacteristic for the man who hemmed and dithered against the Philistines. Either way, based on his men's reaction, Shaul crossed a line when he ordered his men to kill Achimelech. Or did he? Or was Shaul pursuing a hard-line, yet all-too-conventional policy against a growing problem in his monarchy, a David-led insurgency? In its 2009 Counterinsurgency Guide, the U.S. government defines an insurgency as, quote, the organized use of subversion and violence to seize, nullify, or challenge political control of a region. As such, it is primarily a political struggle in which both sides used armed forces to create space for their political, economic, and influence activities to be effective. In a subsequent paragraph, the guide spells out what a successful insurgency needs. Quote, charismatic leadership, supporters, recruits, supplies, safe havens, and funding, often from illicit activities. They only need the active support of a few enabling individuals, but the passive acquiescence of a large proportion of the contested population will give a higher probability of success. 
Though David is not actively subverting Shaul, nor is he trying to challenge Shaul's sovereignty over any region of Israel, he is a highly charismatic leader. He attracts supporters and recruits, as, and as we saw in Nov, he scores supplies and safe havens. He has the active support of more than a few enabling individuals. Many of those individuals are members of the royal house. In other words, Shaul is not acting rashly at all. He has identified the insurgent even before the insurgent has identified himself. Where Shaul stumbles is how to manage this counterinsurgency, and this is where Shaul, like countless other political and military leaders, falls into the conventional trap of confronting David as if David was leading a conventional army. In his 2008 book, The Changing Face of War, Combat from the Marne to Iraq, Military historian Martin Van Creveld presents a powerful metaphor to help understand the dynamic between a powerful counterinsurgent and the weaker, smaller insurgent. Imagine that an adult is engaged in a fight with a child. And I'm not talking about a war of words. I'm talking about a fight that involves fists and punches and kicks and bites. Take a moment to consider this fight from the child's perspective. The child is smaller and weaker. To the child who originally started the fight is irrelevant. To the child who is right is irrelevant. Surviving the fight is the only thing that matters. And the child will do whatever it takes to survive. Can you blame her? Now consider this fight from the adult's perspective. And I'm not talking about Kramer dominating the dojo by fighting small children. Are you prepared for kumite? Yes, Sensei. Fighting fans. <laughs> How would you feel if you actually harmed the child? How would you feel if the child harmed you? Think about that for a moment. Now consider if, after feeling all those feelings, you're thinking differently about the fight and wondering whether it was necessary in the first place. Thus, according to Van Creveld, with each passing minute that the child manages to withstand the adult's onslaught, the adult cannot help but come up with yet another reason to end the fight, which encourages the child to keep fighting. How, then, can the adult possibly win? Van Creveld posits two ways. Either you are incredibly careful, disciplined, and restrained, like British forces during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, or... Cry havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war! <laughs> According to Van Creveld, for counterinsurgents, quote... The core of the difficulty is neither military nor political, but moral. So if you can stomach what needs to be done to win, then you can win. Consider Hafez al-Assad's response to an insurgency led by the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria in 1982. Al-Assad dispatched his brother Rifat with a division of soldiers to Hama, a city considered to be the center of the resistance. Rifat ordered his heavy artillery to shell the city, killing between 10 and 25,000 people. For the cost of practically leveling the city, al-Assad bought himself over 30 years of relative quiet in Syria. Shaul was not as careful as British Commander General Patrick Walters. Perhaps his moods made disciplined restraint impossible. Instead, he enacted a strategy similar to al-Assad. He was cruel. He opted to kill too many, then not enough. He acted quickly, decisively, and openly, and did not hide or apologize for his actions. However, despite his cruelty, he could not carry this approach to its logical conclusion and effectively declare war on his own people, which is why he was ultimately doomed to fail, and David, who never wanted to lead an insurgency, would lead it all the way to Jerusalem and eventually become Jewish history's equivalent of King Arthur.
Not bad for a shepherd boy. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextgen.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come back Join us next week-ish for episode 68 when we continue with the book of Samuel chapters 24 through 27.